Welcome to DealCast, the M&A podcast brought to you by the Merger Market and Deal Reporter editorial teams. I'm Dean McCroby, journalist with Deal Reporter, and welcome to today's episode. Today we'll be discussing the intersection of shareholder activism and private equity. Please welcome today's guests, William Mace of Activist Monitor and William Kane of Deal Reporter. Let's start with the next big thing in the world of shareholder activism. Private equities are sitting on record levels of dry powder at the moment, and activists are excited about the buyout potential this implies. One activist in particular is pretty excited. Can you explain who this is, Will, and what they see in the market? Primestone Capital. They are a UK-based activist here in London. I saw them speak last week at a well-attended briefing, breakfast briefing, where they mentioned, as you say, PE dry powder sitting there waiting probably over the next couple of years as the cycle comes around for targets, buyout targets, but more specifically looking at uh, those that activists might have been incubating for the past few years. Primestone itself, uh, the, the speaker at the, at the briefing was a man named Franck Falazan, who has 16 years' experience at Carlisle Group uh, prior to founding Primestone uh, about five years ago. So it really comes from an interesting source here. He knows the cycles in PE. He knows some of the PE players uh, in depth, and they have a decent amount of companies in the mid-market uh, in the UK that would probably be looking to, to sell out. Are there any examples of private equity buyouts of activist holdings in action and what kind of targets fit into this category? Well, there are plenty. Um, one from Primestone's portfolio in particular recently uh, was GFK, uh, which was sold to KKR. That was The sale actually happened only six months after Primestone disclosed its stake uh, went above the 3% threshold. We're not quite sure how long they might have held that stake, but after they disclosed the stake, this was back in 2017, I believe, the CEO and the chairman both left the company after a disagreement behind closed doors, and then obviously KKR swooped in. So I think Primestone counted that as a bit of a win in terms of a quick turnaround on their investment. Since then, I mean, Primestone has a lot of investments that are ongoing that you would think might attract PE buyers in the future. Uh, recently, they went public with a campaign on a company called Spirent uh, Communications, which is a UK-based telecoms um, testing company. I was at the Sone conference in London uh, in November last year, which is probably one of the most high-profile investment conferences for activists in, in London or in the world. And they mentioned that they would like the company Spirent to uh, find a new owner for its connected services division. Um, the company hasn't responded to that, but you would think uh, that would be something they could split off and then perhaps even sell Spirent after that's occurred. It might be a, more of an attractive target. For a private equity. Yes, for a private equity. And it's also a trend which you can already see happening to a certain extent. Uh, some of the data we have at Acurious on private equity deal-making. If you look in 2018, there were around uh, 27 private equity deals making up around a third of the total deal-making, and that's up from around 18% the year before. So it's already a trend that you can see happening. A lot of big recent deals are also uh, ones where private equity are taking companies private. If you look at Osram, for example, private equity bidder making an offer in that situation, Scout24, another, and I'll sell. And I suppose the other thing which is kind of interesting around private equity and the links with uh, activism is, is around um, uh, some private equity companies taking stakes in listed companies and 
performing a role which you might normally associate with an activist. So, for example, another big deal at the moment, Deutsche Bank, Commerce Bank, where you have Cerberus uh, invested in the share capital of uh, Commerce Bank. So there are some linkages between uh, private equity and uh, activism, and also clearly a big trend for the, de the deployment, really, of all this dry powder that we see um, being stored up on the sidelines. Well, there's even been talk recently of activists themselves looking to buy outlisted assets in which they hold shares. So who's been at the forefront of this trend? I think it's still relatively early. Obviously, crossing an activist crossing the threshold from being an activist and buying a certain stake in a company to force change to actually buying out the company, you know, itself is more of a private equity, well, it is a private equity strategy. So there are multi-strategy funds, the likes of Elliott, which engages in all strategies across the spectrum. They, you know, they have their own sort of private equity arm as well. But they did hint uh, sort of more on their uh, activism side if they weren't getting the right buyers, that they might step in and, and buy out companies themselves. I suppose it adds another dimension to the negotiations that you might be having as an investor when you're looking for a, for a buyer. That was apparently mentioned in Elliott's recent end-of-year shareholder letter to their own shareholders. It's not something that they have actually acted on or are taking into account at the moment, but um, it's something to keep an eye on. And I suppose the other interesting thing is if you really go back through the history of activism, you can look at even investors like Warren Buffett, who started out very much as a, as a long-only investor who became slightly dis, disenchanted with the way some of those companies were being run and took a more activist approach. And then obviously as the size of that fund grew and the returns kept compounding, what Buffett ultimately did from operating in what we might consider today to be a fairly activist-type style um, ultimately moved into buying out entire businesses, um, as partly because it's a natural crossover for an activist investor if they can't get the result that they want as an investor on a public market, perhaps they can by buying it out and then making the changes themselves uh, when they own the entire business. So I suppose if you look you know, through the history of the development of this style of investment, uh, it's perhaps not too much of a surprise that hedge funds like Elliott which have you know, grown very quickly through generating extremely good returns, are now at a scale where full company buyouts might well be uh, something they would consider. So do you see this accelerating? Because from the perspective of an activist exiting a stock, why look for a third-party private equity buyer, right? If a private equity firm thinks it can double its money on an investment, why can't an activist do the same? And do you see this logic propelling activists behaving more like private equities going forward? Well, I think, I think you're right, and the point was raised by uh, Mr. Falazan on this panel that you know, he, he wouldn't necessarily like to sell to peas because it means he's leaving some value on the table for them. I think the po another point he made was that private equities would look in more difficult places in the market once they had exhausted sort of some of the low-hanging fruit in terms of looking for deals with this dry powder, they would look to activist deals where they couldn't double their money. Perhaps they could increase it by 25% or get a certain amount that they wouldn't necessarily usually target from their, from their buyouts. That's, I think, the point where he would step in and say, OK, I'm ready to sell you this business. Well, activism is often linked to M&A, but that is not always the case. What other trends are you seeing among activists at present? We see a lot of demands around corporate governance, basically, is as a way for activists to 
to launch a, a public campaign if that's the way they want to go with it. It's easy to capture the market's attention with demands that sort of target something that the leadership of the, co- of the company might be doing poorly or they might not be up to best practice. Recently, we wrote a piece on Pernod Ricard uh, where Elliot has uh, an investment they have criticised a fair few things at the company, one of them being corporate governance, but they were quite vague. And so Will and I looked at some of the corporate governance stipulations they had in terms of the poison pill they still have available to them, some of the long-serving directors, and also in France there is quite a lot of access to double voting rights for long-held shareholdings, which is the market in general is moving away from these because they don't sort of reflect the free market principles of one shareholder, one vote. So we, we wrote a piece recently on that, and, and it is something that the likes of Elliot and, and other big activists will seize upon, even as a first step before going towards something like M&A or, or spinning off certain divisions. In terms of spinning off divisions, um, demerging, large conglomerates throughout Europe are experiencing a period of extreme criticism of their conglomerate nature, where there might be a discount on, on the share value because these companies are so sprawling and large. So I think we're going to see another spate. Well, it's happening at the moment with cases like ThyssenKrupp, and we're going to see more of that. And even where companies are being proactive, like Siemens, for instance, being proactive and demerging businesses, rationalising their portfolio even before activists have raised their hand in in a certain stock. I guess the the key thing as well for, for activists is and invested in the stock market, essentially, is, is the, the, the one thing they really want to do is make money, and it doesn't necessarily matter whether that's through an M&A transaction or a demerger or an operating improvement or, or, or any of those types of things. It doesn't have to be about M&A. It's not the only way, you know, receiving a takeover premium is not the only way that you can make money in the stock market. So in an example like Pernod Ricard, for example, um, you, you may see that there's an opportunity simply by cleaning up the corporate governance and removing a a discount which investors place on that company because they don't think it's particularly well managed or particularly well run or or run uh, in shareholder interest. Equally, um, the plans to improve the operating performance of Perno. We all know that ultimately the thing that drives stock market performance over the long term is the earnings of the businesses that you're investing in. And so if um, these changes can help um, Perno increase its margins, drive earnings per share growth and improve its returns on capital, then obviously Elliot doesn't necessarily need Perno to be taken over if those changes by themselves can, can give it an above sector or above market return for the period of, it, of its investment. Um, obviously, you can see why an M&A uh, transaction at the end of a campaign can make sense because you can uh, benefit from all of those additional value drivers and uh, achieve a premium and an exit at the end of it. But it doesn't necessarily have to be the first thing uh, that we look at when we're talking about how we might look at activism situations. Yeah, I think that's right. And just finally, in terms of the, the sort of corporate governance and the, the, the institutional shareholdership of some of these large European companies... I really think that there is some ground being given by large foundations or family shareholders that are in some of the big companies. They see now that they can't necessarily resist 
some of these free market forces, these activist forces that are coming into Europe. Situations like ThyssenKrupp, as I mentioned, where there was a, uh, a large foundation, basically had to relinquish a lot of control and is now on the path to sort of breaking up ThyssenKrupp even further than just the steel JV with Tata. Another one is Panalpina in Switzerland, where the Ernst Gruner Foundation is battling at the moment with, with Sivian over its voting rights at, an, at a crucial uh, EGM coming up soon. That is also a precursor to uh, an M&A situation where Sivian and the foundation both have different ideas about the M&A direction of the company coming up. And so the kind of the corporate governance and the, and the shareholder issues really um, feed into the strategic direction of the companies in some of these major European markets. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Will, and thank you, Will. And thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to us. DealCast is available on Apple Podcasts. Just search DealCast. You can also find us on SoundCloud and Audioboom. Information on the deals discussed today will be listed in the show notes. See you next time.